0: A psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. For behold, the kings assembled. They passed by together. They saw it, and so they marveled they were troubled they hastened away fear took hold of them there and pain as of a woman in birth pangs as when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind as we have heard so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts in the city of our God God will establish it forever Selah we have thought O God on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple According to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. Walk about Zion and go all around her. Count her towers. Mark well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces that you may tell it to the generation following. For this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will be our guide even to death. Okay, we are in Deuteronomy. We're starting in chapter 20 today, verses 1 through 9, and this is entitled Conduct for War. It's the first part. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it shall be when you are on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people, And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint, do not be afraid, and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, What man is there who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it. Also what man is there who has planted a vineyard and has not eaten of it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man eat of it. And what man is there who is betrothed to a woman and has not married her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man marry her. The officers shall speak further to the people and say, What man is there who is fearful and fainthearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. And so it shall be, when the officers have finished speaking to the people, that they shall make captains of the armies to lead the people. Beginning in chapter 19, legislations are put forth that are predominantly intended to reveal the sanctity of human life and how it is to be protected this continues on now in chapter 20 which is surprisingly one concerning warfare this particular set of verses deals with those of the soldiers of israel it refers to those who are to be excluded from the battle and it speaks of those who will remain in the battle the primary concern here though not explicitly stated at first is the strengthening of the soldiers in order to bring about victory And there cannot be victory in battle if all of the soldiers are either killed or flee in the engagement. As for the Christian, however, there is a marked difference. The very thing that gives us the courage to not only enter the battle, but to continue on in it, is not what other armies rely on at all. Instead, the thought of death is that which prompts us on to even greater things. First, we follow a crucified Christ. It is his death that even makes our engagement in the battle possible. But more, we follow a risen victor. It is this that tells us that absolutely nothing can prevail over us. Our text verse comes from Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Understanding what Christ has done gives us all of the motive that we need to go forward in our battle. But there is another type of death that should spur us on as well. That is the death of those not in Christ. The devil is fighting hard in that battle and he is gaining the victory over countless souls because of it. The only thing, literally the only thing that stands in the way of that is what the Lord has provided for us as we engage in this war. How important is it to you to know that people are dying apart from Christ and that you could stop that? He has equipped us. He has given us the mandate and we should be expending ourselves in order to complete the task that he has set before us. Someday, our time of labor will end. What will we say when it comes? How are we using our time, our resources, our abilities, and our place, wherever that may be at the moment, to further the cause of Christ? Deuteronomy 20 gives us the conduct for war guidelines that Israel used in their physical battles. The entire Bible gives us the conduct for war guidelines that we are to use in this spiritual battle. Let us live by them, and let us employ every weapon of war provided to us to effect victories on our own path to glory. Such great lessons as this are to be found in his superior word, and so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is, today you are on the verge of battle. It's verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, when you go out to battle against your enemies. The words of this chapter deal with milchama, or warfare. The inevitable course of nations is that of warfare. In the case of Israel, they are pre-commissioned as a force that will enter into war, simply because of the land to which they are entering. It was promised to Abraham generations earlier, with the expectation that eventually his descendants would occupy it. However, there were already inhabitants in Canaan. In order to be the Lord's people in the land promised to them by the Lord and free from the practices of the nations already there, they were under obligation to clear them out. And because of this, and because of other wars which would surely follow after they had possession of the land, Moses will now provide instructions concerning how to handle such matters. Though it appears to be a passage condoning the brutal slaughter of others, the sanctity of life is actually at the forefront of what is conveyed. Only when the circumstances called for the destruction of those they faced was it to be brought to bear. Otherwise, the care of the Lord for people is highlighted. As far as the protection of Israel, the details of that are first conveyed. Verse 1 going on, And see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you. Moses conveys it as a certainty that these things will occur. There will be times when Israel will face armies that are greater in size, that are more fully equipped for battle, and that are in better positions for engaging in warfare. In the event of such a scenario, Israel is now being instructed. And indeed, the writings that follow from Joshua through Chronicles are filled with such instances. Early on in the conquest of Canaan, Israel had defeated Jericho. That was followed by the destruction of Ai. When this occurred, the inhabitants of Gibeon realized that they were doomed for destruction and sent emissaries to Joshua to make a covenant of peace through deception. The covenant was made, and thus Gibeon fell under the protection of Israel. This is found in Joshua chapter 9. In response to this, and knowing that Gibeon was a great city and that it had simply capitulated to Israel without even raising a single sword in battle— A coalition of five kings came together in Joshua chapter 10 to engage Gibeon. Being under covenant with Israel, they petitioned Joshua for assistance. In this, Israel responded and destroyed those five kings and subdued all the land over which they ruled. This is recorded in Joshua 10. The chapter ended with these words, So Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country and the south, and the lowland, and the wilderness slopes, and all their kings he left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed, as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea, as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. All these kings and their land Joshua took at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. Because of this, the events of Joshua 11 came about. That chapter opens with a thought perfectly in line with Moses' words now. It says there, And it came to pass when Jabin, the king of Hatzor, heard these things that he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, to the king of Shemron, to the king of Akshaf, and to the kings who were from the north in the mountains in the plain south of Kinnereth, in the lowland, and in the heights of Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and in the west, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite in the mountains, and the Hivite below Hermon in the land of Mizpah. So they went out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore in multitude, with very many horses and chariots. And when all these kings had met together, they came and camped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel." With such a massive and formidable foe, one would think that Israel would shrink in fear. Despite their success against the five kings, this coalition was enormous, and it was fitted with both horses and chariots. To an army ready to engage such a force in battle, it would appear to be a hopeless challenge. But Moses now tells them, first one going on, do not be afraid of them. Moses has already spoken to the people concerning this. In chapter 7, he said to them, If you should say in your heart, These nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. There he spoke in general terms about what lay ahead. Now he is speaking in specific terms about facing an actual foe that is undoubtedly numerically superior to them. But he exactingly repeats the sentiment. Lotirah mehem. Do not be afraid of them. Because of his words to the people, and because Joshua both trusted the Lord and the admonition of Moses, he repeated to the people of Israel the same sentiment now given. But the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow about this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. (laughs) Several times in Deuteronomy, Moses uses the same word translated as fear when speaking about the people's relationship with the Lord. In essence, do not fear the people of Canaan and do not fear large armies that are well equipped. Rather, it is the Lord your God that you are to fear, clinging to him and relying on him in all that you do. It is in this that Israel will find success. As Moses next says, verse 1 continues, for the Lord your God is is with you if the lord is with israel and if israel both understands this and demonstrates a reverent fear of the lord then why should they have any reason to fear the multitudes they had already faced such a force and that force was utterly swept away again as moses continues it is he jehovah elohecha jehovah your god verse one continues who brought you up from the land of egypt Here, in reference to the Lord, the verb is used as a noun, ha ma me'eretz the bringer up from Egypt. He had brought them out, he had conducted them along the way, and he was still bringing them up as they prepared to enter the promise. The words are similar to those spoken already to the people, As the words of Deuteronomy 7, cited above, continue The great trials which your eyes saw, the signs and the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. It is the Lord who brought Israel out from under the yoke of one of the greatest nations on all of the earth. They were without any means of resistance. They were sorely outnumbered in fighting force and capability, and yet the Lord had defeated the armies of Egypt. As this was so, and as he brought them out of there, then they were to have every confidence that he would also deliver the land he promised to them into their hands. And he did, time and time again. Great multitudes are recorded as being arrayed against Israel, not only in Joshua, but in Judges, 1 Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. Israel was able to defeat these armies when they trusted the Lord and relied on him. However, when the people turned from him, Israel's own defeat was inevitable. Concerning this verse and the words from Moses now, Cambridge almost flippantly asks, Was it on the strength of this verse that Josiah adventured on his fatal encounter with Pharaoh Necho in 612 B.C.? In other words, their statement implies that Josiah falsely trusted in the words of Moses and thus died in battle. At least, that is what they are hinting at. First, half the time, Cambridge argues that Deuteronomy is a work pieced together long after the time of Moses. We saw that last week, meaning they are arguing against their own analysis of the dating of the book by making such a stupid comment. Secondly, Josiah was told in advance that he would be taken by the Lord so that he would not see the great calamities that would come against the land. Here's what it says. Surely I will gather you, Josiah, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place and its inhabitants. Whatever was going on in the mind of Josiah when he went out to face the king of Egypt in battle... The Lord had already told him that he would die before the time he brought his destruction upon the land. 2 Kings 23, Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath, with which his anger was aroused against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will also remove Judah from my sight, as I have removed Israel, and will cast off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen, and the house of which I said, My name shall be there. The people had failed to fear the Lord. Because of this, the Lord would turn his wrath against them. What happened to Josiah was not a failure of the promise of Moses. Rather, it was a merciful act bestowed upon him because of the failure of the people. We can hope that the folks at Cambridge will also face the Lord's mercy, despite their constant failure to uphold the sanctity of the word of God. As for josiah and what happened to him that is all for later in israel's history for now moses continues with his words to the people saying verse 2 so it shall be when you are on the verge of battle the words of deuteronomy have been in the singular for an extended period of time now you israel suddenly it changes to the plural you all this is both expected and appropriate Moses is speaking to the people with the understanding that each is an individual and together they form a whole Israel because the sanctity of life is the main focus of the passage each life is precious in relation to the whole thus it switches to the plural to acknowledge this verse 2 continues that the priest shall approach and speak to the people this is not referring to the high priest rather a priest or priests other than the high priest would accompany the army to the engagement. This was first seen in Numbers 31. Then Moses sent them to war. 1000 from each tribe, he sent them to the war with Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the priest, with the holy articles and the signal trumpets in his hand. During a battle in 1 Samuel 4, the Israelites were being defeated by the Philistines. At that time, they called for the Ark to be brought to them as if it was a talisman that could secure the battle for them. Along with the ark came the sons of Eli the priest. That is not what is being referred to in this passage either. That is at a point of disobedience in Israel, and it cannot be used to correspond to Moses' words now. What is probably closer to Moses' command, though not specifically in accord with what is said here, is recorded in 2 Chronicles. Now look, God himself is with us as our head, and His priests with the sounding trumpets to sound the alarm against you, O children of Israel, do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers, for you shall not prosper. The priests had accompanied the armies and probably conducted the ceremony Moses refers to now before the battle was engaged. Moses' specific words concerning the priest are, verse 3, and he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel. Here the priest is given the words to speak. He is to first acknowledge that his addressees are Israel, or he who strives with God. They were to thus understand that a battle was about to ensue, that the Lord would be with them, and they were to strive with Him in the accomplishment of their task. Verse three going on, "Today you are on the verge of battle. Moses uses a masculine, plural, verbal adjective to express the matter. "Atem Hayom la milhama. You all approachings the day to war." As it is in the plural, the priest is speaking to all of the people as individuals. Each of you is a part of what is drawing near to this engagement. And it is to be, verse 3 continues, with your enemies. The word with is a poor choice of translation. It reads, (laughs) al-oyevechem, upon your enemies. One could say against, but the word gives the sense of a downward aspect. It is in itself a word of encouragement. Israel is said to be coming down upon the enemy, even though the battle is not yet engaged. Using the word with implies an equal footing, but this is not the intent of what is said. Just as the Lord is above them, so Israel will swoop down upon them. Therefore, verse 3 continues, do not let your heart faint, do not be afraid, and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. Moses' words that are to be repeated to the people by the priest are full of lively encouragement. Two of them are brand new in scripture. The first is rakak, to be faint-hearted, to make soft, and so on. The second is hafatz, to be in trepidation, hurry, or alarm. Taken together, they are words of inspiration. Do not let soften to your heart. Know you shall fear, and know you shall panic, and know you shall be terrified from their faces the priest is to speak these words confidently knowing that moses is the one who first spoke them and that he was led by the spirit of god as they came forth as he says in the coming verse verse 4 which i'll get to in just one minute for now a poetic break for you the lord your god is the goer with you he will be with you each step of the way the lord your god faithful and true will be with you through the bloody fray He is the bringer up of you from where you were. As this is so, he has a plan for you. He will never leave you. This is for sure. The Lord your God, faithful and true. Have no fear as you enter the battle. It is already won. Press into it without any fear. You shall prevail. God sent before you his beloved son, and together you shall the enemy assail. Our second thought today, let him go and return. It's verses 4 through 9. Verse 4, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you. As in verse 1, Moses uses a verb as a noun to describe the Lord. He is the goer with you. It wasn't that the Lord was watching over the battle as a coach on the sideline, but he is actively with Israel, stepping onto the field of battle with them in order to secure the victory for them. As Moses next says verse 4 continues to fight for you against your enemies again the New King James Version misses the translation and thus misses the unity of what is occurring instead of to fight for you against your enemies it says to fight to meaning with regard to you with your enemies it is the synergistic meaning working together idea that Moses has put forth so many times already in Deuteronomy Israel has its part in the battle, but the Lord has his part. He will fight against the enemies of Israel as Israel comes down upon them. As this is then noted to have a purpose, which is, verse 4 continues, to save you. Here, the word is Yasha. It comes from a primitive root signifying to be open, wide, or free. Thus, it means to deliver. Here it is delivered in the form of victory. Israel is already the Lord's people, but they have battles to face in this capacity. When they rely on the Lord, they will be delivered in the battle, triumphing over the enemy. One should hopefully see the intended connection to the church in this. We are the Lord's people. We have battles to face in this capacity, but we have been given the ability to overcome them and to be delivered in the battle, gaining victory over the enemy. This is not speaking of salvation, which is already accomplished, but of deliverance in war. Just as Israel faced physical enemies in battle, so we face spiritual enemies. From Ephesians 6, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. And just as the Lord promised to be with Israel in battle, we have the same assurance as well. From Ephesians 6 again stand therefore having girded your waist with truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace above all taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Israel had its part in what was expected, but the Lord also had a part in its outcome. The same is true with us. If not, Paul would not have written these words to us. A part of preparing Israel for the battle was to remove from the engagement anyone who is not suited to participate in it at that time. Verse 5, Then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, Here Moses' direction goes from the attending priest to the shoterim, or officers. The word comes from a root probably signifying to write. Thus they are superintending magistrates who are likely responsible for the genealogical records. Whether they were fighters or not, and probably not, it is they who would account for those who would go forth to engage the battle. And to ensure that all who would go were both capable and qualified to do so, they would first call out any qualified exemptions, saying, verse 5 continues, What man is there who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? It is a personal question. Mi ha'ish asher bana ba'it chadash velo Who the man who built house knew and no dedicated it? The magistrate is speaking to each and every person does this apply to you this is the same for each question that follows instead of what man is there it should read who is the man each instance is personal and it is directed to the life and conscience of the men the word hanak or dedicate is introduced here it is used when referring to the dedication of the temple in 1 kings chapter 8 The noun form of the word is found in the introduction of Psalm 30 as well, where it says, a psalm, a song at the dedication of the house of David. It appears that new homes were dedicated to the Lord, just as we dedicate houses or churches to the Lord today. Along with this would have been singing, a party, food, friends, and the like. If you've ever watched It's a Wonderful Life, a short ceremony like that was conducted at one of the new houses in the town. Dedicating a house in this way would be as much of an appeal to the Lord for its protection and blessing as anything else. One can see how the word Hanak is the verbal root for the word Hanukkah, or dedication. If someone had not so dedicated his house, verse 5 continues, let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. Of this, John Lang says that such a person, if he had made efforts for life, should first rejoice in the result of his efforts it was as humane as it was prudent we always look at such occurrences as tragic if a person wrote a great novel and died before it was published and it sold 10 million books we would say how sad such an instance then would not only be detrimental to the memory of the person but it would also be detrimental to those soldiers who were aware of the event In this, they too would be disheartened, and it would then further affect the morale of those engaged in the battle. The important point here is that though the battle is fought with the Lord, it is anticipated that the Lord will allow death within the ranks. In other words, the synergistic, meaning the working together concept of the battle, is once again revealed. Soldiers could not just walk out onto the field of battle and assume that they would prevail and come out unscathed. The lesson here tells us that we can expect no less in our own Ephesians 6 battles. We must prepare as soldiers who are actively engaging the enemy. To fail to do so is an imprudent choice leading to an ineffective Christian in the ongoing war. Verse 6. Also, what man is there who has planted a vineyard and has not eaten of it? The word halal is used. It gives a sense of boring or piercing and thus to open. The idea here is not of merely eating the fruit, but of bringing it into its common use, whether for eating, selling, and so on. This is based on the precept stated in Leviticus 19. There it says, When you come into the land and have planted all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as uncircumcised. Three years it shall be as uncircumcised to you. It shall not be eaten. But in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy a praise to the Lord, and in the fifth year you may eat its fruit that it may yield to you its increase. I am the Lord your God. The person has planted the vineyard. He has cultivated it and brought it to maturity, and he has even brought it forth as a praise to the Lord, and yet he has not brought it into its common use, meaning he has not profited off of its labors in eating, selling, giving to the neighbors, or whatever else he could do with it. If so, verse 6 continues, let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man eat of it. Again, the irony of the tragedy would be heartbreaking to friend, family, and any other who heard of it. And further, the other soldiers would become disheartened over it as well, knowing that he had died before receiving the blessing of his efforts. Along with the first two tragedies comes one more. Verse 7, and what man is there who is betrothed to a woman and has not married her? It is another humane act bestowed upon the people, just as a person should be the one to benefit from dedicating a house or seeing a vineyard through to its maturity, so a person should be allowed to bring forth his intent to marry in like manner. Nothing is said here of either a virgin or otherwise. The man is betrothed and he is entitled to the blessing of that betrothal. Later in Deuteronomy, an explicit time frame is given by Moses concerning this. Deuteronomy 24, 5, when a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. Although it isn't always the case, apparently a good round number for man to no longer bring that special happiness to his wife seems to be at the one year point. After that, the old saying distance makes the heart grow fonder will hopefully bring things back to that once delightful state all kidding aside the word for a man so betrothed is verse 7 continues let him go and return to his house lest he die in the battle and another man marry her again the ironic tragedy of dying in battle without having been blessed with the fruit of the action is what is conveyed here to see a man die in such a state would not only be harmful to the betrothed woman but to all who saw it including the other soldiers hence the wisdom of moses words is clearly seen in these three aspects of the soldier's life, a hint at the work of Jesus Christ can also be seen. The Lord is building a house which is not yet dedicated, that's 1 Peter 2, 5. The Lord has a vineyard which is not yet complete, Luke 20, 16 and 22:18. 18. And the Lord has a betrothed whom he is not yet married, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2. Despite this, he died in the battle before all three were realized, and yet, The victory remains his because he prevailed over death. Thus, the ironic tragedy of the soldier of Israel is overcome by the victorious Lord. It should also be noted that the opposite of these humane blessings is stated as a curse to the people who fail to obey the terms of the covenant. In Deuteronomy 28, in the blessings and curses upon the people, it says in the curses, You shall betroth the wife, but another man shall lie with her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but shall not gather its grapes. With these things understood so far, Moses next continues with verse 8. The officers shall speak further to the people and say, What man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? The words are personal and specific, saying, Who is the man, the fearful and soft to heart? Here the adjective form rak of the word rakak seen in verse 3 is used. This cannot be speaking of the normal sense of fear that any soldier would feel at the outset of a battle. Other than someone who is not quite right in the head, it is almost unimaginable to consider a person not being in some sort of mental anguish at the prospect of engaging in a battle. This person, however, demonstrates an unhealthy fear that has abandoned trust in the Lord's ability to win the battle. It is a hopeless fear that has no place in the man prepared to serve according to the prospects that all responsible soldiers must face. The reason I say this is because the Lord himself demonstrated his own internal conflict in the battle that was set before him. However, his trust in the Lord's ability to bring him through the battle was stronger than the desire to run from it. As it says in Luke 22, and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed saying, Father... If it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The Lord understood that his mission was to accomplish the father's will. He sought that first and foremost, and he prevailed through the battle. He brought forth the victory because of this. And in his victory, we now have the same source of strength open to us. This would not have been possible otherwise. As Moses says concerning the soft-hearted soldier, verse 8 continues, let him go and return to his house lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart velo yemas et levav echav kilvavo and no melt to heart his brothers as his heart a cowardly heart cannot bring about victory and in the face of defeat the rest of the people will also flee from the battle this is seen for example in joshua 7 verse 5 And the men of Ai struck down about thirty-six men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. It is again seen in Joshua 7, where the Lord whittled the soldiers down to an impossibly low number, many through this exact allowance by Moses. I said Joshua, I meant Judges. It is again seen in Judges 7. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Who is fearful and afraid? Let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. Despite the people of Ai being a much smaller force, the soldiers of Israel smelled defeat and their hearts melted. And despite being a much, much smaller force than the Midianites, Gideon and his 300 men remained strong-hearted, and they prevailed. Does anybody know the ratio? It was 300 against how many? 120,000, a huge disparity. Fear is contagious. What the people in a battle need is not the cowardly at their sides, but the heroic at their head. This is seen in the example of David, when Israel faced Goliath and the Philistine army, and it is seen in the church today. We know that we can prevail because we know the Lord has already prevailed. And more, we know he is in the battle with us, and he will deliver us safely to the victory. Our conduct will be based on who we fix our eyes on. And so we let us fix our eyes on jesus with that we will have all the strength that we need to endure the battle that we are in and to prevail verse 9 finishes with and so it shall be when the officers have finished speaking to the people that they shall make captains of the armies to lead the people this translation of this last verse is almost wholly conveyed in this manner when the officers are done they shall make captains In other words, the action of appointing captains comes after the dismissal of various exemptions, and it is conducted by these same officers. However, there is a second possibility for the Hebrew, which I would lean towards. It reads, And shall muster them captains' armies in head the people. In other words, the action of the second clause is not that of the officers, but of the army captains. This is reflected in the Aramaic Bible, which says, And when the scribes have finished speaking to the people, the commanders of the armies shall stand at the front of the people. In this, the sare or military leaders, already have their positions, and it is now their turn to accomplish the mustering of the troops that remain. This would actually be more in accord with the military designations made later in Scripture. There are set military leaders who go before the soldiers, But for each battle, the officers would come forward, call out for exemptions, probably record those exemptions, and then cease their work to allow the military commanders to then muster their troops and prepare to engage the enemy. Either way, the army is initially prepared for battle. Those who are not to serve for the various reasons set down are then removed from the ranks and then the final preparedness for the battle is made. It is with this thought in mind that the passage ends. In the next 11 verses, the actual rules for conducting the battle will be laid out. And so, for now, we will close with the thought that even though this is not a heavily Christological passage, it still bears the mark of precepts that are actually fulfilled by the Lord. Though his battle was not a physical battle on an open field, it was an actual battle nonetheless. And with the continued war that Paul refers to in which we are, even now, engaged, We have the same assurance that the Lord is with us that Israel had. Yes, it may even be scary to live out our lives in this fallen, troubling world, but we have all of the implements that being a soldier of Christ calls for. It is, however, up to us to use them. The very fact that Paul implores us to make use of them means that it is up to us to do so. Jim brought that up at the beginning of the church today when he spoke about this. This is where we get our instructions, folks, and we take the instructions and we apply them to our lives. And without doing so, we will not be successful in the battle before us. If we fail in this, it is we who will be ineffective in the battle. There is the same synergistic, meaning working together idea now, that there was for Israel. But like Israel should have done, I will clue you into this. The more that we rely on the Lord, the more we set our eyes on him, And the more we employ the implements he has provided for us, the better off we will be. Israel would often go it alone and they would fail. But great leaders like David would acknowledge that the Lord was at their head and they would prevail. Let us act in like manner. And in this, we will be effective in the battles we face to the glory of the Lord who has and who does go before us. This is it. This is our instruction right here. You want to know about the sword that the Israelites carried in the battle? The comparable spiritual sword is recorded right here. Actually, it is right here. Israel wore helmets on their heads. We have a helmet to wear. Israel had breastplates. We have a breastplate to wear. Israel had shoes on their feet when they went into the battle, and we are told to put shoes on our feet, and each one of those is described in Ephesians 6 by Paul. This is what we are asked to do. And I feel very bad for these people that go to churches that do not get into understanding what those things mean. Life application sermons are fine. I give you two a year. It's no problem there. They're very easy to type. It takes me an hour and I got the rest of the day feeling guilty that I did such a thing. But they're good for Christmas and they're for Easter. But the rest of the year, we need to know doctrine. We need to know what the Lord expects and we need to know what the Lord is telling us in the old so that we can understand the new. This is where doctrine is. I would pray that each person here would pick up their source of doctrine and that they would read it every day of their lives. Read it in the morning. Think on it during the day. Read it again at night. Okay, this is what I would ask you to do because we're not going to win in the battle that is set before us. We're not even going to be participants in it if we don't know this precious word. And this word tells us of Jesus. Tells us of the victor over all of the things that Adam lost. There is a battle going on I was talking with Ron today about Moses and the body of Moses and what does that mean when the uh, archangel Michael was disputing with Satan over the body. And kind of dawned on me something that is not in my Jude commentary, and I will add this in later, is that it could be that the devil simply said, I'm the victor. The law, the lawgiver, is dead. I'm the victor. If he can't win the victory, If he couldn't live out the law, which the law he gave says it, the man who does these things will live by them. If he can't do them, who can? Disputing over the body of Moses, they're standing right there. He's saying, I'm the victor. God has lost the battle if Moses is dead. And Michael probably said in his dispute with him, just wait, it's not over yet. The plan is still ongoing. And then Jesus came. There's no more dispute after that. You know, you always wonder why it says that uh, Pilate's wife had a dream the night before, don't have anything to do with that righteous man. Devil always went through the woman, didn't he? He went through Eve. She's like, don't do anything to him. Devil realized something's going to happen. If this guy gets crucified, something is going to happen. He couldn't figure it out, but something is going to happen. And he went to the cross anyway. And something did happen. Three days later praise god if you will put your trust in jesus christ he will save you there's nothing more sure on this planet than the salvation of jesus christ he will do it for you if you call on the name of the lord believe that christ died for your sins believe that he was buried believe that he rose again and praise god you will be saved and then you can enter into this battle don't be an exemption i got to go dedicate a house get into the battle Our closing verse comes from 2 Timothy 2, it's verses 1 through 4. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Next week is Deuteronomy 20. It's verses 10 through 20. What things are soldiers of the Lord required to do? It's entitled Conduct for War. Part two. Thank you, Jay. That'll be your 60th Deuteronomy sermon. I'll tell you this. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you, but he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay. I got a poem. It's entitled Conduct for War. But before we get into it, I'd like to ask you a question. Got some peanuts here for you. If you... Now, I want to give you a warning before I hand this out. This product is manufactured on equipment that processes peanuts. Okay. So if you have an allergy, don't come up and take your, your winnings. Okay. Be careful. We mentioned the new word in Scripture today, Hanukkah, which is the root of the word Hanukkah today. Okay? Where is the feast now known as Hanukkah mentioned in the Bible? You're correct. That was really quick, too. She gets. You're not allergic to peanuts, are you? I love them. Okay, good. The book of John. I'll read you where that's at. Let me take you there. That's exactly right. It's not called Hanukkah, okay? I wanted to, before I gave away a clue, I was expecting silence and nobody answering it, but she blew my uh, my surprise when I was going to give you a hint. Well, I don't have to give you a hint because she just blurted it out. Okay, here we go. Excellent job. Very excellent. John 10, verse 22, it says, Now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. That's based on the intertestamental period, the Maccabees' uh Captured back the temple and they cleansed it and it took them eight days and that's why you know they had enough oil to last them for one day is the tradition which is written in the book of Maccabees you know that's not inspired it may be true it may not be but the fact is that there is a feast of dedication and it's a biblical feast because it's in John chapter 10 so the feast of dedication is Hanukkah and that word was introduced into scripture today to dedicate okay so good job peanuts for you let me put that close so you can there you go. All right. Let's see here. Conduct for war. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them for the Lord, your God is with you who brought you up from the land of Egypt. He is faithful and true. So it shall be when you are on the verge of battle that day that the priest shall approach and speak to the people with words to convey. And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are with your enemies on the verge of battle. Do not let your heart faint, do not be afraid, and do not tremble or be terrified because of them or because of their prattle. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to save you, so he shall do. Then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, What man is there who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it, a tragedy anyone would admit. Also, what man is there who has planted a vineyard and has not eaten of it? To his taste buds he did not it commit. Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man eat of it. And what man is there who is betrothed to a woman and has not married her? A tragedy for sure. Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man marry her. The officers shall speak further to the people and say, What man is there who is fearful and fain-hearted from the start? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. And so it shall be, when the officers have finished to the people speaking, that they shall make captains of the armies to lead the people, the ranks they shall be tweaking. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the rules of conduct in warfare that you have given us so we can understand what happened to Israel and we can take those same type of precepts and we can apply them to our own battles now. We can know that there are times when maybe we need to step back from the battle because we have something important in our life that tells us that you've given us the grace of doing so. But help us to be engaged, even in those times, to remember the lost and to speak to them and to tell them of the saving mercies of our God because of what you have done through him, through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for that wonderful assurance we have, and we would like for others to have it as well. So help us to open our mouths and speak. To your glory alone, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.